welcome to episode 158 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Jeffrey Schlager, Karen Hill, Jesse Sebel, Venus Bailey, Bioscience Girl, Kerry, Joanne Broderick McGuinness, and Karen Green. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review is The Ring. The Ring was released in 2002. It has 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb and 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. It sounds like just another urban legend. A videotape filled with nightmarish images leads to a phone call foretelling the viewer's death in exactly seven days. Newspaper reporter Rachel Keller, played by Naomi Watts, is sceptical of the story until four teenagers all die mysteriously exactly one week after watching just such a tape. Allowing her investigative curiosity to get the better of her, Rachel tracks down the video and watches it. Now she has just seven days to unravel the mystery. Before we start with today's film review, I just want to say that yes, I know there is a Japanese original version of this particular film I believe it's called Ringu and I have seen it many many years ago and I am aware that it is much better than this version and if you haven't seen it go and watch the original version of this film Ringu it is fantastic so as always we're going to break this down into likes and dislikes and we're going to start with the likes and let me tell you the sheer nostalgia of watching this movie was a joy I must have watched this film about a thousand times when I was a teenager. I was obsessed with it. I was obsessed with this movie, Ringu. I was obsessed with The Grudge and the original Japanese version of The Grudge. Like, honestly, I just loved this style of film when I was a teenager. So it felt really nostalgic going back and watching it. Even though I kind of, I knew the bits that were going to freak me out. I knew the story. I knew what was going to happen. Oh, it was just so nice to go back and watch it again. And the thing I kind of didn't really understand, I think, when I was a teenager about this film was how much it tapped into urban legends, the idea of urban legends, how prevalent they are in teenage culture. And how as a teenager, when you hear these urban legends, you kind of laugh at them, but you're also a little bit scared of them too. And the opening of this film, I think, encapsulates that idea just perfectly. And then it takes that urban legend and just puts it into a grown-up setting, which is lovely, really well done. The opening scene of the girl being found in the wardrobe traumatised me at the time when I was a teenager, and even now to this day, I was freaked out knowing it was coming, because I couldn't fully remember what her face looked like. And honestly, it was just as freaky now as it was back then, And if you haven't seen the film, this isn't a spoiler, don't worry, but part of the death of the victims in the film is that their faces are distorted after their death or during their death. So when they're found, their distorted faces are quite a shock to whoever has found them. And I remember being so freaked out by the that sight of those distorted faces. And what I realized watching it now is that they're only on screen for a split second but yet they had that massive profound impact on like a generation of horror movie watchers. And it only happens a couple of times in the film. In my head, it was happening all the time in the film, those distorted faces, but it really didn't. It only happens a few times. 
Which kind of leads into my next point, which is that it starts big with the distorted face and then it moves into this really slow burn. And a lot of the film is really kind of overtaken by this sense of dread rather than relying on jump scares or kind of gore or this distorted body situation that's going on. Really, it's it's more eerie and creepy and slow burning than I really remembered. The videotape itself is just eerie. I mean, looking at it now, it's if it was done, I think, in a modern day, it would be you know, a bazillion times creepier. But I remember at the time being so freaked out by that videotape and even still watching it now, like it is eerie and it's scary. And I think the story behind the videotape is really, really interesting. Yes, there are cliches in the story behind the videotape. Of course there are. But Samara is a great villain. So Samara is the girl, the little girl in the videotape. She's the quintessential girl in the ring. She's the girl who comes out of the TV and she's a great villain. And not just because she looks scary and she has that long black hair and she comes out of the TV. But actually her origin story I thought was really interesting. I don't think I really appreciated it as a teenager. This idea that some people are just bad. And that's it. And that's kind of the story that you get with Samara is she is just a bad apple. She is just a bad kid. Bad things happen around her. She causes bad things to happen. She doesn't know how she does it but she does do it. And that, I think, makes her a really interesting villain. Because, yes, her story is really sad. But then you also think, what would I do if I was in the situation where I had I had this child and she was just bad? So it's far more nuanced and interesting than I really remembered. Which brings me on to the dislikes. And I feel like my dislikes are a little bit hypocritical. So I apologize in advance. I am aware that I am a hypocrite when I talk about these things sometimes. I just, I forgot just how much of the film is dedicated to the journalistic searching for the tape's origins. Like it is literally three quarters of the film is about them trying to figure out where the tape came from with kind of interspersed with freaky little happenings that happen every so often throughout the story. I think in my memory of it, she was climbing out of the TV every two seconds. But actually that's not what happens at all. Very little scary stuff actually happens in this movie. And I know I'm a big hypocrite because I always complain about films that rely too much on jump scares or too much on the monster in the movie. And this film does not do that in by any way, shape or form. It does not rely on jump scares and it does not rely on Samara until sort of the end of the film, I suppose, which is fine. That's that's totally understandable. You have to have a reveal at some point. But I just feel like there was a whole portion of the middle of the film where nothing nothing really happened except that she was going to the library trying to figure out stuff about this videotape. Does anybody else think as well in these films that like when I go to the library I never find what I want. I never find exactly what I'm looking for. The movie magic of people being able to instantaneously find stuff they need in the library is pretty incredible. And I'm also about to say something that is again hypocritical which is that I think the child in this film was criminally underused. And I always complain about children in horror movies. But this kid, this kid is a freaky kid, but in a good way. It's implied that he has this like sixth sense about stuff that's going to happen. That maybe he is like somehow psychic, but we it's never really developed and never really explored properly. And while I was watching it, I really wondered how scary it would be to a modern audience. Like, does it translate as well 
as it did in whenever it came out, 2002. But in saying that, it was a groundbreaking movie at the time and the nostalgia factor is strong with this one. So I'm going to give it a four out of five. Which brings us to our story this week. And this story has absolutely nothing to do with people climbing out of televisions. It has nothing to do with being stuck down a well. It has nothing to do with long black hair, which is just inevitably creepy. But it is a story that has been on my to-do list for a very long time. And it is a very strange story. I mean, it's a re- it's a really, it's a really strange story. It's stranger than I thought it was, actually. So uh, buckle up. This is going to be a weird episode. It's going to be a weird ride. Let's get into it. The Isle of Wight is the largest island off the coast of England and is the second most populous. It is situated on the south coast between England and France and is simply referred to as the island by its inhabitants. The island is famous for its coastal beauty and landscapes and is also one of the best places in Europe to find dinosaur fossils. It is a place that has long been a popular holiday destination for British people and is traditionally known for boat making, including the making of hovercraft and flying boats, and even, perhaps fittingly for this story, it is the place where Britain's space rockets are built. The island is full of ghost sightings and lore, but the story that we are going to explore today might be the strangest story that we've ever covered on the podcast, with the obvious exception of Jeff. Jeff will always be number one. On the Isle of Wight, there is a little seaside town of Sandown. Initially, Sandown was not set up as a residential space, but rather it was used as a strategic military site due to its proximity to France. Eventually, when France and England stopped invading each other and a train was introduced, Sandown became a bustling little seaside town. And to this day, it remains largely as it was in the Victorian period, with a sandy beach a high street with shops and restaurants, and a traditional Victorian pier. In short, it is an unremarkable seaside town, except for the strange tale that I am about to tell, which puts Sandown on the map for a very strange reason. And the only question that you need to keep in mind when you are listening to this story is ghost or spaceman. Faye and George were playing in the Lake Common area of Sandown. They were both seven years old and had made friends on the week of their holidays on the island. Their days consisted of playing in the sand dunes when they went to the beach and running in and out of the waves having the time of their lives. They ran and shrieked and laughed and played and their parents were quite relieved that they had found a way to entertain each other. It's important to remember that the 70s were a different time and allowing children to ramble and roam was commonplace. And at four o'clock, on a Tuesday afternoon, in May of 1973, Faye and George were doing just that. They were ambling around Shanklin and Sandown Golf Club when they heard a sound. It was a weird wailing sound. A sound that was not unlike the wail of an ambulance siren, but not quite the same. Something seemed strange about it. It was more metallic and tinny. The children followed the sound, curious to find its origins. They followed it across the golf course 
and into a swampy wooded area just outside of the Soundown airport. And then the sound stopped. But the children were set on their new adventure and they continued until they came to a bridge. From beneath the bridge emerged something blue, shockingly blue compared to the surroundings. It was a gloved hand and the hand was followed by a strange creature. It stumbled out from under the bridge, dropping a book into the river and fumbled around in the water trying to retrieve it. Whatever this creature was, it seemed not to notice the children and they watched as it retrieved its book and lumbered off through the swamp towards a metallic hut. Rather than walk, the creature hopped along the ground with its knees raised high. The creature entered a windowless metallic hut and the children stared after it for some time waiting for it to return. They were fascinated by this blue-gloved creature hopping through the swamp and were desperate for another peek at it. They hung around the metallic hut waiting and waiting and eventually their waiting was rewarded. The creature emerged from the hut but this time it was carrying a black knobbed microphone with a white cord attached to it. As it emerged, so too did the mysterious wailing sound, which terrified the children at such close proximity. They began to panic and run, and the creature realised that the sound was frightening to them and stopped it. The children were running and didn't care that the siren had stopped, but something did make them stop in their tracks. It was a voice. Despite the fact that they were a fair distance away from the creature now, they heard the voice as if it were standing right next to them. Hello. Are you still there? In the infinite wisdom and logic of children, George and Faye in a split second decided that the voice sounded friendly and they stopped running. The children turned and made their way back towards the creature and this time were able to get a much better look at it. The creature was huge in the eyes of the children. It was nearly seven foot tall and seemed to them like a giant. It had no neck, as though its head had simply been placed on its shoulders. It wore a yellow pointed hat, which went the whole way around its head and interlocked with the red collar of its green tunic. The top of its hat was adorned with a round black knob and on either side of the hat, there were two antennae, which the children described as looking wooden. And then there was its face. Its face was perhaps the most strangest aspect of this already bizarre figure. Its eyes were simple triangular markings, and its nose was a brown square. The lips were yellow, and sat motionless around an oval mouth. Its cheeks had round markings, and its skin was paper white. It had a fringe of red hair that emerged from under its hat and sat on its forehead. It wore white trousers and it had wooden slats or sticks protruding from the ends of its sleeves and its trouser legs. As the children marvelled at the creature, it pulled out a notebook and began to write. It held up the notebook to the two children and Faye bravely stepped forward to read what it had written. Faye read the large block black letters. Hello, and I am All Colour Sam. 
any fear that the children had was completely overtaken by a desperate curiosity. They had never seen anything like Sam. They couldn't understand what Sam was and wanted to find out more. And Sam began to speak to them, but without the notebook this time. They asked Sam about his clothes, which were ripped and tattered. They are the only clothes I own. The children were fascinated by the unnatural, almost glowing white of Sam's skin and couldn't comprehend whether he really was a man. Sam told them that no, he wasn't a man. So for the children, the only other logical explanation was that Sam was a ghost. Well, not really, but I am in an odd sort of way. The children had exhausted every explanation possible for this situation. So they settled on a basic question. What are you then? You know. Sam then told the children that he had no name and that there were others like him. He drew another creature that looked like him. Sam confided in the children that he was frightened of humans and was always afraid that he would be attacked, but had decided that if he was attacked, he would never fight back as he did not want to harm the humans. Sam invited Faye and George to enter his hut and again with the logic and wisdom of children, they were desperate to see where this strange creature lived so they willingly accepted. The children and Sam crawled through a small flap in the hut and into a two-leveled strange world of wonders. Sam removed his hat, revealing white ears and sparse brown hair. The ground floor of the shack was covered in blue and green wallpaper and had dials and buttons everywhere. There was an electric heater and simple wooden furniture. Sam had a camp on the mainland, but would not tell the children where it was located. The children asked Sam what he ate, and he told them that he ate berries, which he foraged for in the late evening, and drank water from the river. He then showed the children how he ate. Before he ate the berry, he popped it into his ear and thrust his head around. The berry then appeared in one of his triangular eyes. He wobbled his head and the berry disappeared again and then finally appeared in his mouth where he proceeded to eat the berry. The children spoke to Sam for a further 30 minutes before they said goodbye and made their way back across the golf course. The first man the children saw, they ran up to him excitedly to tell them that they had seen a ghost. They were beside themselves with excitement and couldn't wait to tell everyone that they had seen a ghost. At the very least, they believed they had seen someone dressed up in a strange costume. To their great disappointment, the man that they had told didn't believe them and eventually had the audacity to dismiss their story by laughing at them. The children were appalled and devastated and it took three weeks for them to talk about it again. And this is where Faye's father comes into the story. Three weeks later, on the 2nd of June, 1973, Faye told her father what had happened on that fateful day, and obviously he didn't believe her. He thought he was listening to a story that two children had made up during an imaginative playtime adventure. But Faye was insistent. They weren't making it up. She told her father that she had either seen a ghost or that a strange man had been dressed up and was trying to scare people. He listened to her description of Sam. 
what in the world was this man wearing? Was it a mask that had cleverly concealed his identity and also succeeded in scaring the children? There was a part of the story that really stuck with him, however. Faye was absolutely convinced that Sam wore no shoes and that he only had three toes on his feet and three fingers on each hand. That would be considerably harder to fake. He contacted the family of George, who verified the story. Faye's father was troubled by what his daughter had told him. He was concerned, first of all, about the possibility of a strange man in the swamp who was dressed up and luring children into a metallic hut. But there was something else that was stirring up strange memories and worries. Faye's father was no stranger to odd things happening on the island. On Tuesday the 20th of October, Faye's father was driving across the island to visit his friend. As he was driving, he suddenly saw lights on his right-hand side. And when he looked to see what was happening, he saw a large aircraft that was lit by multiple lights flying low over the marshlands along the river Yar. He was so shocked that he pulled over the car and got out to observe the aircraft. It was a wide ring of seven or more lights. Each light was round, large and very clearly defined. Each light was bright red and each light was interspersed with a turquoise and white light. It was completely silent. Faye's father returned to his car and drove off with the aircraft continuing to fly parallel to him. Again he stopped the car, got out and signalled to the craft with its torch but nothing happened. The aircraft followed him until he reached his friend's house and when he left his friend's house it was gone. After this incident he continued to see red balls of light in the sky as though he were being watched or followed. On the 1st of March 1972, Faye's father was sitting on the cliffs at Compton Bay. He had driven there with his car, but a strange tidal surge had meant that he was stuck sitting on the cliffs waiting for the tide to recede. As he sat on the cliffs, he saw two yellow lights beneath the water. They were just below the surface and he had no concept of what they could be. At the time, he knew that they were the lights of some sort of craft and he also knew they were somehow responsible for the strange tidal surge. He described them as being like the eyes of a giant sea monster. But now he had an unnerving feeling that Sam was somehow connected to the lights that he had seen. Faye had told her father that when she was talking to the ghost, there were workmen nearby who couldn't seem to see Sam. They didn't seem to see anything out of the ordinary. So what happened? The story of Sam was written about in the British UFO Research Journal, which is where the story and descriptions come from. Faye's father contacted the British UFO Research Association to report the story, and it has remained a fringe paranormal tale to this day. So what happened on that day? And what are the options to try and offer up some sort of explanation? I'm a firm believer in the simplest explanation being the most likely. So let's start with the simplest and possibly the darkest explanation. Was Sam a human? It's very dark to consider, but we do have to consider it. Is it possible that Sam was simply a man dressed up? 
Sam was dressed in a way that would hypothetically appeal to children. Although, he doesn't quite pull it off. Sam moves around in a strange way and does magic tricks for children in his hut in the woods. It's not a good look. Every single town has its strange characters. And perhaps the children met one of those characters and did not quite know how to describe what they saw. So their reference point was some sort of clown. I find it very hard to believe, however, that a man dressed as a creepy clown, luring children into his hut in the swamp, would go unnoticed in a relatively small island community. The children also reported that there were workmen nearby who didn't seem to see Sam at all. It is also, however, a well-known psychological phenomenon that some children will invent an alternative story to try and manage trauma they've experienced. So, it's a possibility that we at least need to nod towards before we go any further. Is it possible that Sam was an alien? Well, Faye's father seemed to think so, and the British UFO Research Association seemed to think that it was at least a possibility. It's also important to note that Faye's father insisted on anonymity for both him and his daughter, so there doesn't seem to be a case to be made for fame-seeking in this particular story. And then, there is a really bizarre theory. As posited by Ashley from the Curious Archive, who wrote about this story on the 16th of August, 2021. This is absurd, and I'm only throwing out the idea because this story can't get any weirder than it already is. To put it simply, men in black are often put into two categories. The first is the FBI-like agents in black suits with stern expressions and a we-mean-business attitude. The second is a similarly dressed human with strange mannerisms and something off-putting about their appearance. Both types have been reported to show up if a person has witnessed or is investigating UFOs. Now, Faye herself wasn't said to have witnessed a UFO, but her father had apparently been dealing with them following him around for the past few years. Could Sam have been there to ask Faye questions about her father? To compare Sam to an infamous Men in Black sighting, we can look back to the 11th of September 1976, when a man in black supposedly visited Dr. Herbert Hopkins, family physician, in his home in Maine, USA. At the time of the visit, Hopkins was conducting research on a UFO incident. In 1978, he reflected on the incident and the man in black on NBC radio. The character was as bald as an egg. He didn't even have eyebrows or eyelashes. It looked like he had smooth plastic skin, like a doll, except that it was a dead white colour. His lips were a brilliant ruby red, and he spoke in an expressionist monotone scanning speech. He constructed no phrases and sentences, just a sequence of words evenly spaced. His voice was completely passive, with no inflection or intonation as if you were hearing it from a machine that could talk. Then I could see that his mouth was a perfectly straight slit. Apparently, he did not have what we call lips, so the lipstick was put on as a decoy. His mouth was more like a ventriloquist's dummy. Sound somewhat familiar? Whether we believe anyone in this crazy story, 
it is interesting how the strange appearance and way of speaking are so similar between Faye's encounter with Sam and Hopkins' encounter with the man in black. While not exactly the same, especially with the clothing, there is enough there to raise a few eyebrows. It's also worth highlighting that most of the conversation between Sam and the children wasn't disclosed, including whatever was discussed during the half-hour visit in his shack, other than his weird berry trick. Could he have been inquiring about what her father had seen? This, of course, is entirely speculative and based on nothing but my own enjoyment of these stories, so take from that what you will. Sam became known as the Sandown Clown in paranormal circles, and the story still does the rounds every so often. Sam was never seen again, and to my knowledge, no version of Sam was seen again, or at least no version was reported to have been seen again. Whatever happened in that swamp that summer day, Faye's father believed her, and the children maintained that what they had seen was real. When they returned to the scene of the sighting, the metallic, windowless hut was nowhere to be seen. So there is a lot to unpack in this story. I am very aware that there is a lot to unpack in this story. So let's get into it. And again, I have to give a nod to the fact that yes, I'm very aware that this story potentially is true and that the children have orchestrated a magical story to help them deal with something awful that happened to them. To be really clear, there's no other evidence to point to that. I don't think the father believed that happened. Like nothing has come out since to say that that happened, but it just is something that we need to reference before we go any further with the mirth and the wonder that is this story. So let's go right back to the beginning. I need some like wavy, wavy sound music, you know. So right back to the beginning, you have this ambulance siren wailing across the countryside. Did nobody else hear it? Did nobody else hear the siren wail? If you're living in a small community and you hear a sound like a wailing, thundering siren sound that isn't an ambulance, you'd be like, what the fuck is that? Anybody else hear that siren? That was weird. And I know this story wasn't necessarily reported in the newspapers. It was reported in the UFO journal. Like, I understand that. So it wasn't like mainstream news at the time. So I don't know how you'd find out if somebody else had heard the wailing. But surely somebody else would go looking for the wailing. Or was this was the Sandown Clown like a, a Pied Piper? Like a modern version of the Pied Piper? Doing a little siren wail and hoping that that's what will attract children. I mean, we all know that not only can children breathe fire, but they are also notoriously attracted to sirens like moths to a flame. That's a fact. So the children are legging it across the golf course looking for this sound. I do actually, all jokes aside, I do actually understand like as a child, if you did hear, hear a sound like that, of course you'd be like, let's go investigate. Let's go figure it out. And it's the 70s. Children were out running around wild willy nilly, like going everywhere, doing everything, climbing up things, running around, you know, construction sites. There was no rules for children in those days. But here, the thing that really freaks me out about this story is the gloved hand emerging from under the bridge. It's like an earlier iteration of Pennywise, you know, and the fumbling around, like dropping the book in the water and fumbling around and then doing that knee raised hop through the forest or through the swampy foresty bit. It's like Pennywise sort of trying to be trying to be clumsy in order to seem less threatening. 
And it is those strange little small details like that that both make me wonder, is this story true? But also make me wonder, is it completely and utterly made up? Because it's such a strange detail. And when you think about like an alien, right? If you think of the Sandown Clown as an alien, you don't think about aliens as being clumsy. Like they don't come into your room to abduct you and walk into the corner of your bed and bruise their thigh. Or they don't fall over your shoes that you've like abandoned on the floor when you've kicked them off at the end of the day. That never happens in alien stories. So who's is is this guy just like the worst version of E.T. that they've left him behind on purpose because he kept breaking things on the spaceship? I was going to say like some sort of alien Jar Jar Binks. But Jar Jar Binks is an alien, right? And on the topic of the pseudo-clumsiness, I've decided it's pseudo-clumsiness. I've decided that the clown isn't really clumsy, it's just all an act. But what was the book that, that he dropped into the river? What was the book? Don't tell me it was his notebook, because if it was his notebook, he wouldn't have been able to write on it later, because it would have been all wet. So what, what books do aliens read? Was it War of the Worlds? Was it Humans for Dummies? And if it was able to communicate with its voice, then why did it need to write anything down in the notebook at all? And I have to say, my biggest anger about this story is the lack of description we get about Sam the Sandown Clown's ears. We know that when they went into the hut of doom, Sandown Sam took off his hat. The children saw his ears and saw his straggly brown hair. What kind of ears were they? Were they human ears? Were they holes in the side of his head like chicken ears? Were they pointed ears like an elf? I want to know what kind of ears they were. And equally, the red fringe that they saw in the beginning must have been a part of the hat then, if he had brown hair when he took the hat off. I do think that fundamentally this story really boils down to Faye's father. He allegedly had all these UFO experiences and then his daughter comes home with this story and I feel like whether the story was made up or whether Faye and George just happened to meet some sort of character of the town that was, you know, maybe maybe a bit eccentric. I'm going to take all of the horrible implications out of the character and out of what possibly happened. But maybe they met a character that was a bit eccentric. And Faye's father heard that and went, it's them aliens. It's them aliens that have been following me. And I really need to address as well that there are major dangers, I think, in arbitrarily signalling to an alien spacecraft with a torch. If you're driving along and aliens are following you and you get out and start flashing your torch at them, you don't know what you're saying to them. This isn't Close Encounters. You don't you don't know what you're saying to them. You could be thinking that you're flashing your torch and saying, I am human. I am not a threat. When actually, what you're saying to them is, your hat looks stupid and your magic trick with the berry is rubbish. Seems like it's just a really big risk to me, to be honest. And I think it's really important to say as well that three weeks elapsed between the sighting and the children telling Faye's father, which is a really long time for something to have happened, whatever that something was, whether the children met just a strange man in the woods, and those children to have created a narrative that is more imaginative and more magical than maybe it actually was in the beginning you know that that three weeks is a really is a really long period of time in the life of a child and even down to things like saying they spent half an hour in the hut 
Like children, children's concept of time is very different than an adult's concept of time. It really, really is. Children's concept of distance, like we get really specific distances like in the story that say the children were 50 yards away from the hut when this happened. When actually children's concept of spatial awareness is incredibly different. What I will say is that I don't believe this was a prank on the part of the two children. No way do I believe that. I think children are like notoriously rubbish at pranks, to be honest. If you've got children knocking around, their pranks usually consist of some version of hiding or jumping out at you. Their children aren't great at pranks. It get they get better as they get older, but two seven year olds, I don't know if they'd orchestrate a prank to this level, to be perfectly honest. What I did wonder was whether or not the two children actually met a construction worker who showed them his you know those little construction pods? on um, construction sites, those little metallic small prefab things. Seems a lot more likely and there definitely were construction workers around at the time and whether of course they then orchestrated a story around that that was entirely different than what actually happened. But then of course we have to address this idea that it was potentially the men in black or some iteration of the men in black or some early prototype of the men in black that they got disastrously wrong. And the more I hear about the Men in Black and the more I revisit the story of the Men in Black, the more I think that the likelihood of them being vaguely human looking but not quite getting it right just seems more and more unlikely. I mean, we've seen what prosthetics can do in films these days. Are you telling me the aliens don't have the capacity to create something that looks human-like? They can fly across light years, but they can't quite figure out how humans work or at least get it semi-right, you know? And if their first attempt at creating like the men in black as we know it as these pseudo humans who show up when somebody sees UFOs, if that was their first attempt where they created some clown like creature who eats with his eyes, I'm not sure that I'm particularly concerned about any sort of intergalactic warfare just yet, to be honest. Fundamentally, here's my take on the story. I think two kids did probably have a weird experience maybe with a local character I think that they probably invented a story or the story became more and more wild as Faye's father got involved I think Faye's father very likely saw lights in the sky or lights under the water and as a result of that became paranoid about lights in the sky or paranoid about whether or not this story that Faye was telling was true He might be thinking ordinarily I wouldn't believe this story but since I've seen these weird things and I feel like these aliens are following me then what if it is true? I think that's far more likely than there being some sort of alien slash ghost slash men in black that looks like a budget Pennywise. Thank you so much for listening to today's story. I need to give a special shout out to Ashley from the website website The Curious Archive who wrote an incredible step-by-step outline of this story. Uh, the link, as always, will be in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to find out anything about Real Life Ghost Stories podcast, you can find out everything that you need to know on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. If you are super desperate for more content, you can get lots more extra content for $5 a month or $2 a month if you sign up to patreon.com forward slash stories, and you also get every single episode ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. <laughs>